When Paul wrote his letters to Timothy, his concern was not only for Timothy, his greater concern was for the church. He did care about Timothy, uh, this young one who was uh, uh, finding his way in ministry, and yet his concern was the greater matter of what was going on that Timothy might be an assistant with as he gave him these instructions, the last things that he brought to Timothy's attention, at least that we have before us, is that, that uh, in this letter he says those who are in this present age are rich. As for them, command them not to be haughty or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But listen to this very carefully. But rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. Paul was looking through the eyes of Jesus. This was the nature of the way in which he saw the world from that time in which he was blinded by the light on that road to Damascus. He began to see through the eyes of Jesus not only himself, but others as well. And here is one indication that he believed very strongly that Jesus is coming to the world. It does affect the way in which we see ourselves and see those around us. One of the most disturbing parables that Jesus uh, used was the story that he told about the rich man and Lazarus. If you would, listen to a little bit more scripture this morning as I share this passage with us. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away from Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus is, like, is in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm, and it has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. And he said, then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And he said, No, Father, Ab no Father, no Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to, the, to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Uh, this passage of scripture is disturbing in its images, but Jesus is making his point very clear uh, through the 
uh, nature of the way in which we live, we either serve God or against God's purposes. And in fact, the clock is ticking for us in terms of the opportunity to do good and to be involved in good works. There will come a time when we do not get to make that choice any longer. We are called to be a people who are rich in good works. And I have a question for you. How do you want to be rich? Some of you say to yourselves, I don't fit into the category of rich. But ask many around this planet who would gaze in at us today and they would call us fabulously wealthy. How is it that you choose to be rich? Some of us that are here have chosen ways to be rich in order that we might make available to God that which is His. Uh, some of you who have been in my office realize that I'm rich in rocks. I have a collection over in the corner of my office and it's the most wonderful thing because these rocks have been picked up either by myself or somebody else. I tell people who are going off on a trip, pick me up a rock, bring it back to me. It cost you nothing. It cost you nothing. And so I have this great collection of stones there in my office from all over the world, which I value greatly, but they absolutely are no, of no earthly value other than just the idea of, of who has given them and from whence they have come. How is it that you want to be rich. I was at a funeral recently and my friend Mark Anderson was there and he was uh, talking to the family. In fact, it was, it was after our graveside service that he had knelt down near the family so that he could speak to them very quietly uh, about the, the plans for the end of the, the service there at the graveside. And uh, when he knelt down, I could see these just bright colored socks that he had on. And when he got up and moved back over closer to where I was, I, I motioned to him and I whispered in his ear and I said, of all the things that have blessed my day, your socks are the greatest. And of course he smiled and, and got a good kick out of that because they were just absolutely fluorescent socks. And the next funeral that I had with Mark, um, he called me over to him and he said, I've got a little something for you. And I knew where this was going, you know. And so I opened the package and, and sure enough, it was a, it was a <laughs> pair of socks. Get a load of those today. Now, don't I look fancy in my socks? Now, I, I have no idea what Mark does with his resources in general, but I know that, that he is one that has learned to be rich in socks, right? He has, because he's not only wearing socks, but he's also giving them away, or at least he did to me. And so he has become rich in socks. And so I ask you the question, uh, because we overcomplicate this. What is it that you would choose to be rich in? We get to make that choice. And it has everything to do with how, many, how much our resources might be that we could share uh, with God's good purposes, God's direction uh, through this church and in our lives in general. 
one of the wealthiest men I have ever known. And I didn't know him personally. Well, I did a little bit. I was just a preschooler when we lived in Waverly Hall, a little community just above Columbus, Georgia. But Mr. Pitts lived there. Now, when Mr. Pitts was a, a young man, um, he made the decision to gather up as much of his resources as he could and to invest in Coca-Cola stock. Now, this, this would have been good gracious uh, 90 years ago, I guess, or something like that, or more, because he was old even at that time. And so he had invested in Coca-Cola stock and had become fabulously wealthy. Now, you wouldn't know that by the, the house that he lived in. And, and the word was that he could have driven Rolls Royces all of his life, but he chose to only go up as high as an Oldsmobile. You know, that was sort of the mark of his, his limit in terms of what he would spend on an automobile. But he, he was a generous soul. And he, he gave so generously to the church there, the local congregation, but he found many other ways in which to, to make that money available because that wasn't the thing that made him rich. He had qualified that differently. One of the things I do remember about Mr. Pitts was that he wore red socks. I never saw him sitting on his, his porch out front without his pants hiked up enough so that you could see these vibrant red socks. I wonder how many pairs of red socks that man owned. But he chose to be rich in red socks in order that his money might be available for God's good purposes. Now at the time of his death, he passed on what was left of his estate, which was quite an enormous amount, I'm sure. He passed it on to his daughter, whom he had infused with the same mindset. So that Margaret Pitt's name is on many a building up in the Atlanta area, especially on the Emory campus and across South Georgia where she saw many opportunities to use her resources or was it God's resources? I think it all is perspective. He, she used these resources for doing good in the world. What a wonderful thing it is when we begin to understand how we choose to be rich affects God and what God can do through us. A part of our nation's DNA has been to use its resources for good, at least in its history. In fact, this is a part of what makes us who we are. It is written into the fabric of our nature. Up in the New York Harbor, there is a wonderful image of a lady who carries a torch, the Statue of Liberty. And at the base of that Statue of Liberty, there is a bronze plaque that bears the words of a poem that was written by Emma Lazarus in 1883. That's an appropriate name, considering uh, the story that we have just read from the Gospel writings of that Lazarus. But Emma Lazarus wrote a poem that she entitled The New Colossus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning 
and her name Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. This is a part of our heritage, but it's quite different than what we talk about when we speak of the American dream because each person to his own individualistically is seen as being capable of amassing quite a sum. And you can look out over our community and even see this in corners that people see the American dream not as being so much attached to, attached to the Statue of Liberty and the care of others as it is to attach, attach ourselves to our goods and our goods to ourselves. Have you ridden around lately to see the bane of our culture in the number of storage facilities that we have? Oh, goodness. You can go anywhere and rent a building to house that which you do not have room to keep in your house. How far does this go? And what is it that marks us? And how is it that you and I want to be rich? We get to choose about this. I have this thought in my mind of a game played with children and youth occasionally on church lawns. And that is that you line the children or the youth up opposite from each other. And then you begin to hand out to one of those lines that's facing the other a raw egg in each hand on this side. And then you get the two persons that are opposite each other as close as possible, and then you give them the instruction, okay, now toss the egg to the other person across from you. And so that works pretty well when you're just a foot apart, right? But when you get to be two feet apart, three feet, four feet, you can imagine how many cracked eggs are on church lawns. What's interesting is if you observe the youngest ones, if you look at what a three or a four-year-old does with that egg, they are given this thing that their mother never would have put into their hands. And so they look at it as a treasure and they begin to hold it lightly and then a little bit more closely they begin to absolutely hold onto that egg and they think we've got to protect this egg and in the midst of squeezing that egg of course you know what happens the egg is crushed and the yolk and the white run right through their fingers and all that they had had in their mind was to protect it to take care of it and it ruined even the little game that was about to be played What is it that you're holding on to so hard? Does it bear any meaning for you? Really, does it bear any meaning? How is it that you've chosen to be wealthy? Does it it allow for God to do with your resources, or should I say his resources, 
what He wishes to do in creation. The beauty of tithing is that it is the beginning of embracing the concept of not holding on. And tithing has been a part of the culture of this church for ages. It's a part of it. You've heard me speak of tithing. You have heard many speak of tithing from this place. And to focus on this, not as an end in and of itself. Jesus would not have wanted us to make this an end of itself. But that it would begin for us this embracing of the concept of not holding on. At the end of the Civil War, there were people that were not going to give up on the system that was quickly being dismantled. Confederate money was all over the place and still in people's minds it had value, it had value. In fact, the South surely would rise again. And so rooms were filled with this money, which of course, as you know the story, became absolutely worthless. I think because God had a different plan for this nation. That God was leading us to a different place entirely of looking at the world around us. And yet there were those that were hanging on the old system and hoping, hoping that somehow their investment in this worthless paper would somehow mark their lives for the good. There was no hope in that. Paul says to Timothy, as for those who are in this present age rich, command them not to be haughty or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. The early church had the mentality that the most important thing was to share. I love these trees that create helicopter seeds. That's what I call them, helicopter seeds. You've seen them before, haven't you? I had to look up which trees it was that that uh, produce these, but the maple tree produces these helicopter seeds and ash trees and sycamore trees. But the beautiful thing to me is, is that when they begin to release those seeds, that they just float everywhere on the breeze. On the most gentle breeze, they will just populate the earth with another tree wherever they go. If given the opportunity, they will populate the earth with that brand of tree. And you and I must carry on the tradition in this church. Because don't you know that we are here having been planted before by those who put it in our minds and in our hearts that we are called to be a very generous culture. For this is the fabric into which we are knitted. You know already that no one tithes accidentally. It doesn't happen that way. It only happens when we set our mind and our spirits to allow God to do the work through us that he intends to do and wishes to make a worldwide discovery. I am humbled Whenever I enter this pulpit, I'm humbled by the preachers that have preached here, the former pastors that have been a part of this church. Even in my mentioning it, some of you are thinking about favorite preachers that you have heard speak from this pulpit that have 
express the good news of Christ in such powerful ways. Right now, I have on my mind one person who spoke from this pulpit only one time. It was back in 1969 or 1970, from the best I can determine. Not sure. I'm going to keep looking to see if I can figure out which of those years it was. E. Stanley Jones spoke from this pulpit. That's incredible to me. If you know who E. Stanley Jones was, this, this quintessential Methodist missionary whose life was marked by Asbury College where he, he received this individualistic concept of doing the work of evangelism, but whose life was broadened into this social emphasis that carried him to become one of the most dear friends of Mahatma Gandhi in India and how he took on with Gandhi this concern for the independence of the people there not to be under British rule. He was an incredible individual and spoke with such intellect, but such heart. I wish that there was a recording of what he said from this pulpit. I treasure many of the things that I have read about him. This quote in particular, E. Stanley Jones said, God is the owner and you are the ower, the ower. This puts God in his place and you in yours. You are not free to manage your material possessions as you like, but as he likes. Those are powerful, powerful words if we take them to heart. About five years ago, a little girl walked into my office. Her mother was just outside in the greater office, the secretarial office, and she came in and she had a little ceramic owl. I meant to bring it in with me when I walked down the hallway this morning, but she gave to me this ceramic owl that she had painted with such care and I took it into my hands and I said, thank you. I said, are you giving this to me? And she said, no. <laughs> and I said, oh, you wanted me to see it and uh, then give it back to you. And she said, no. And I was trying to guess my way through this conversation. I said, you want me to borrow it? She said, yes. And I said, I would be happy to have this owl here on my desk and with that I took it and I set it there on my desk and uh, I said I said I will keep it for you right here until you are ready to have it back and so for five years I had this ongoing conversation with this little one who would come into my office and she would want to see the owl and she would want to say hello and I would always ask her 
are you ready to have your owl back? And she would say to me, no. And she was fine with it being right there on my desk all the way until the time that she moved away from Pittman Park. And the last conversation that I had with her, I said to her, oh, you've got to remember your owl. And she said, no, you can have it. And I thought, how wonderful that she came to finally give it to me. It took five years for her to do that. And how long does it take us to learn that what we give really is God's and what we have, the joy of it in our hearts is to relinquish it back to him. Here in this place today, I hope that you come to an awareness. I've been aware this week of the smell of peanuts freshly dug. Have you? What a wonderful fragrance that is. I've been aware this week of cotton waiting to be harvested. Have you been aware of that this week? How aware are you as we move through this world? Our awareness should lead us to this deep generosity. This generosity that is motivated by the fact that you and I pay homage to Jesus, the Son of God, who knelt before his disciples and washed their feet. Jesus, the Son of God, who went to the cross and gave up his life in order that God's love might be fully known. You and I are called to remember that Jesus not only died for us, but he lives for us. Paul's instruction to the church at Corinth was interesting because he was comparing them to Macedonia that had given a very generous offering, a love offering, that was being taken by Paul back to Jerusalem to those who were in very dire need there. And he, through his communication, Paul was encouraging those who were in Corinth to also be generous. And this is the way that he put it. He said, I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And so I want to ask you again today, how do you want to be rich? <laughs> that could be a part of it. Something so simple as only buying socks to make you smile and others smile. 
in order that more of God's resources would be available for his good. How do you want to be rich? As we come to the close of worship, let me remind you that our singing of this final hymn is a beautiful offering to God itself. But if you also have your commitment card and would like to place that in one of these baskets, I want you to know that this altar is open for you to come and to place it there and to even spend time in prayer as we sing. Jacob, would you come lead us?